Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. History is always on our minds here at Notes from America, but particularly so right now. We've, of course, just finished Black History Month. We're just starting Women's History Month. And these annual celebrations are, at least in part, about crafting a new version of our national story, a version that includes people who have been written out of it, often because our lives and our contributions complicate the existing version of our national story. As the Notes from America team has been thinking about our own role in crafting a new version of the national history, we came across a really, really cool project that we thought maybe we can try a version of this live on our show. So bear with me. In a moment, I'll set up what we're all going to do together. But first, let me introduce our guest. Juliana Richardson is the founder of The History Makers. This is a project that uses video oral histories to capture the untold personal stories of African Americans one person at a time. There are now more than 3,400 oral histories in the History Makers database, some famous, some everyday people. It's housed at the Library of Congress and available in a digital archive online, and among its many purposes is to be used in educational settings. Juliana Richardson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi, it's really nice to be here. So this project was born from your own personal experience digging around in the archives at the Schomburg Center for Black History here in New York as way back in the 1970s. Uh, Can you share your origin story with us on this work? Sure. Um, I uh, grew up in a small town uh, called Newark, Ohio, not New Jersey, for those (laughs) of you who are on the East Coast. And we really never said anything about Black people. I mean, George Washington Carver and his peanuts and slavery. And so my nine-year-old brain couldn't compute that my white teacher was telling me he could do all these things with peanuts when all we had been were slaves. And then one day, the same teacher asked us to talk about our family backgrounds. And literally, I mean, the kids' hands were going up. I'm part German. I'm part French. I mean, at a dizzying speed. And I was like, I didn't know what to say because mm. I didn't know at that point, black, it wasn't black and I'm proud. So maybe I was Negro. Mm. And then I said Native American because most black people think they have Native American in them. And then I have it in French because my father had been stationed there. So I lied because <laughs> oh, no. I wanted to, I wanted to be sexy like the others. Oh, they wow. knew what, you know, yeah, so yeah. it wasn't until that fateful day at the Schomburg Library when I was doing research on the Harlem Renaissance that. I had this awakening and um, and went around interviewing people mm. um, at that time. You know, Butterfly McQueen, who had started and gone with the wind, tap dancer, Honey Coles, historian John Henry Clark, and a man named uh, Lee Whipper, who was the oldest living black actor at the time. He had been born in 1887. 
you know, um, so, so that, that's the beginning. And you at the time were not, you were a student, but you were not a historian. And in fact, you went on to be a lawyer, to have an illustrious career in law and media and all these other things. What made you, it wasn't until what, 2000, I think that you came back and started the history makers. Yeah. 1999. 1999. What brought you? I mean, I, I really, you know, you get to a point where you start wanting to give back and, mm. you know, do something for society. And and those stories, I start, you know, I was talking to lots of friends and, you know, their backgrounds and their families were so fascinating. And they were not in the public parlance. And think about, you know, like there's been discussion like the even at that point, there was the Cosby show and people were like thinking that was not you know, at the beginning that people, black people didn't live like this. There are all these stories. I mean, really, really, really rich stories of people's backgrounds. And so those stories stayed with me, you know, that I had done as a young college student. And at that point, I don't know about the Spielberg Shaw Foundation. Don't know about that project, which after uh, Steven Spielberg did Schindler's List, you know, he was motivated to interview all living and willing Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. So it was in the planning phase that people from the Jewish community start telling me about the Shaw Foundation. I checked them out. But, um, you know, at that point, I'd already written a concept paper. You know, I had two friends who did an intervention on a Saturday. They were like, what are you doing? I'd actually gone to... National Bar Association conference in um, Memphis because um, I was without a job. That's another thing. I was out of job. <laughs> It'll focus the mind a lot of times. <laughs> That's right. Focus the mind because I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I was very confused about what my next steps would be. It's been a long time since I had practiced law, and so um, I went to this bar association conference, and there was. Reverend Billy Kyles and Constant Just, Justice Constant Baker Motley, and more importantly, Judge um, Leon Higginbotham, who I uh, loved and adored. And this is the time of the, the uh, Clarence Thomas hearings, mm-hmm. you know, where people, and he had been invited to the conference. Um, and so the name came to me, and I came back, and I was like, I know what I want to do. I want to do an archive of Black people. And my friend, who had been... Um, head of uh, our local PBS station, she um, had been indexing the collection because a lot of TV stations had thrown, you know, thrown away their, their material. Their, so their she conversations was indexing with, with, mm-hmm. with these black women. And so um, I, um, that was it. You know, I said, I'm, I'm going to do an archive. She didn't think it was a, bu- a good idea, but my friend said, ask two questions. Ask if, answer for archive, like, you envision, does it exist already? Mm. And if it doesn't exist, someone would be created, would anyone be interested? They said they theorized no, but those are the two questions I set out to answer. Okay. Well, we need to take a little break. Uh, Listeners, as I said, we're going to try to do something similar to Juliana's work with you. We can't do a formal oral history, but maybe we can capture the spirit of things. I want to know, do you have a story of someone living or dead in your community whose history you think needs to be captured, but probably won't make it into the history? books. Call us up and tell us their 30-second story. Like, if you had an oral history project going like the one at the History Makers, who would you include? Juliana is collecting the stories of African Americans. For this hour, we're open to stories from any community, though since it's Women's History Month, we'll give special preference to stories about women. 
I'm talking with Juliana Richardson, founder of The History Makers. We will take a short break and take your calls after. Stay with us. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I'm joined by Juliana Richardson, who is founder of the History Makers Digital Archive. It's a project that has collected thousands of video oral histories of African Americans, both famous and unsung. And listeners, as Juliana tells us about her work, we are asking you to call us up with your own stories. I want to hear about someone living or past in your community whose story will probably not make it into the history books, but that you think needs to be captured. Juliana, uh, one of the neat things about the History Makers Archives is that it's um, is that a lot of interviews start with these sort of detailed, mundane questions to get people going. So, like, what's your favorite food? So, what's your favorite food, Juliana? Can, can, can you, can <laughs> you, you know, tell me? Just, asked that. And, and why do you and why do you start the conversations that way? But first, well, what is you your know, we food? we we actually uh, started uh, one of my favorite foods is um, salmon. But um, I, we actually started to ask people those questions uh, because a lot of what we're doing at the beginning is bringing people to a point of memory and, and also relaxing people with questions that sort of catch them off guard because they're sitting there, you know, thinking they're going to do something very serious <laughs> in terms of, uh, of their life long history. And we, find, we see people relaxing, you know, as, as we really start the process of reawakening memory. Uh, well, did you share your favorite food though just now? I did. I said salmon. Okay, that's right. You said salmon. Sorry, I got. I, see, I got so drawn into the answer. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I want to share a clip from one of the the notable but not famous people in the archive. Uh, this is Shirley Ann Jackson. She is a physicist. She was the first woman to receive a PhD in physics from M- MIT in 1973. And she later chaired the Nuclear Regulatory Commission for four years. So this is her telling uh, an anecdote about her time in the women's dorm uh, as a Black woman doing her work. It's about a minute long. I've told people the story of the first physics problem set, and I had been working on it for a period of time and was working my way through the problems. And then I got up to go to the restroom. And so when I went out into the hall, I see all these women on my floor out there working on these problem sets. And so I went in and did my thing, washed my hands, went back to my room, and I gathered up my papers and went out and said, may I join you? And uh, one of them looked up and says, go away. And I said, well, I 
I've done half the problems, and I think the answers are right, and I think I know how to do the other half. Other one, did you did you hear her? She said, "Go away." So I went back to my room and I actually cried for about hmm, half hour, forty five minutes. But then I decided I had to finish my physics problems. So I went back to the problems. I love that. And then I decided I had to go back to work. So I went back to work. <laughs> and, you know, and I share that one. You, I'd love to hear your reaction to it, Juliana. But I also just I share that one because you've got a whole section of the archive dedicated to people in science. And I want to know about why you why you chose that. No, we I mean, I thank you for playing that. But I mean, I actually did her interview and I don't have memory of that story. I mean, <laughs> well, you've I done think that that's all right. <laughs> Well, I um, I've done myself about five hundred of the you know wow. of the interviews, but I want to say that uh, first of all, the, everybody should know Dr. Shirley Ann Jackson. She was just recently stepped down as president of Rensselaer Polytechnic. Um, she is a noted scientist, a noted business and um, leader, and educate. Well, I should say education leader and STEM leader. Um, she serves on, you know, major corporate boards. So that's where the business comes in. But I, and she was head of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission under um, President Clinton. She, um, so the fact that she's telling that story, and you think of kids now, like there's a lot of trying to find your way, a lot of, you know, things like bullying. But in this case, it's like she doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And how does she go on to be? the first female, black or white, to graduate with, the P with her PhD in physics at MIT, when obviously she did okay on those story sets. <laughs> obviously. But when you think about it, no one was willing to work with her, and look what ended up happening. Right, right. And so I just think that, you know, for young people and for anyone who's trying to find their way, you know, that, that story itself would be, within context, would be very inspirational. The other thing is that STEM is, you know, STEM brought us through COVID. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are at a time where we can, we are remembering the value of these of, of, of this field. Okay, well, let's take some calls. Let's go to V in Chicago. V, welcome to the show. Hi. How you doing, V? Do you have do you have a, a a person whose story you'd like to share with us? Who you think this this is a this is a person whose story needs to be recorded? Absolutely, I want to share my grandmother. My grandmother is the first black female that the Chicago Board of Trade hired as a director in 1971. She's still living. She retired in 1994, so next year will be 30 years. She's been retired. She was in charge of the mailroom, office services, and reprographics, and her name is Erdine R. Bryson. Say, say her name one more time. Her name is Erdine R. Farine, last name Bryson. Okay, Erdine, let's let's lift her up. That's wonderful. Thank you for calling and sharing that, V. Um, and thank you. Thank you. And and Juliana, the folks like that, your in your archive includes people who, you know, we have some again, there are famous people. I think Barack Obama's in there, you know. But there are also, as I've said, people who are not famous. Why 
Why is that important to you? Why is it important? Oh, it's, to- it was extremely important because you don't know where history lies, right? Um, you know, we're doing people's life oral histories. You know, we about 50% of our subjects know a lot about their family background. 50% don't know much at all. But we were really trying to pick up where the slave narratives uh, left off. And, you know, a lot of times we were paying attention. We have the place on our site where people can recommend people to us. Like, there's a woman named Jenny Lagan um, who got recommended to us. Um, and she's the famous, if you watch any old black and white movies, she's from Chicago. She was the famous tap dancer, you know, oh, wow. female tap dancer. So okay. you just don't know where history lies. You don't know where history lies. Let's go to Brett in Elgin, Illinois. Elgin, Illinois. Brett. Hi there. Um, yeah, I wanted to uh, mention my grandfather. Uh, his name was Russell Seitz. Um, he was born in 1904. Uh, he passed in 1992. Um, um, and he passed when I was 15, so there was a lot that I, I didn't uh, get to ask him about. But I later in life, I always marveled at the fact that he lived through so many major events uh, throughout the 20th century. And he was too young for World War One, and they lived through the Depression, and too old for World War Two, and all the different things that he saw between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy assassination and going to the moon. And it fascinated me that this man who, like, you know, he was born in uh, Saragorda, Illinois, and he ran his own trucking company before World War II, and he built houses. He was an electrician and a carpenter, mostly self-taught. And I thought he was a treasure trove of information that, as a 15-year-old, you don't think to document. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you for that, Brett. Let's go to Wendy in Springfield, New Jersey. Wendy, welcome to the show. Yes, I, I would like to lift up Imogene Johnson, who is now dead, but she's originally from Chicago. Uh, and uh, here in Springfield, New Jersey, uh, she was the principal of a middle school. But what she was most known for in our community was anything that you had a problem with, whether it was something with an, with an agency or something with somebody wanted to you know, to learn something. She knew someone who could connect you with someone. She was the person you went to. She was the community um, godmother. And uh, when she was younger, she had she went to the continent, I think it was Liberia, with a group of teachers to train teachers in Liberia. And um, I know that from her, her eulogy when I went to her funeral. But a wonderful person, Imogene Johnson, and she's originally from Chicago. She grew up in the Ida B. Wells uh, projects there. But she came to New Jersey, and she was the light of our life and my son's other grandmother. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Wendy. Uh, And um, you see on YouTube says Richard A. Smith, 1932, was a Black physician who was part of a five-person team composing the Surgeon General's Office of Equal Health Opportunity, which desegregated the U.S. hospitals in the mid-1960s. So thank you for that, you see. Um, You mentioned, Juliana, um, the slave narratives at one point. Um, and this is the works pro- the WPA, the work project works progress administration, um, s- s- collected narratives in the early 20th century of formerly enslaved people. Um, just for folks, first off, who don't, who aren't familiar with that project, um, give us a quick sense, uh, of what that was, catch people up on that. And then like how you see, cause you said you see the history makers as a continuation of that work. Yeah. So between the years of 1936 and 38, right after the Great Depression, under the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, there was 
what was called the Works Projects Administration. And so they put people basically back to work. And one of the projects was to interview uh, the formerly enslaved. So there were 2,300 interviewed between the years of 1936 and 38. And, and um, there are funny stories about that, you know, where one formerly enslaved was interviewed by a white person and a black person, and they had totally different uh, stories. Or mm-hmm. Neil Horson um, is probably the most well-known black person who worked on that project. I want to say one thing, though, to also um, some of the people have called in. It's really important. You'll get to a point where you really want to know more. And, you you know, if you can just take out your iPhone or recorder and just sit down and talk with family members. And, you know, we really need to rescue the history. We're about to lose most of the 20th century. It's a really, really stark point um, <laughs> that those of us of a certain age are starting to realize, you know, because we can look at our families and say, oh my goodness, the, the 20th century is is slipping away from us. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so good note, if you are, uh, if you're thinking about it, just take out your phone and start recording somebody in your family that you think should be uh, should be captured for history. I, on the WPA, uh, former um, narratives of formerly enslaved people, finish the thought on on how this project. Because you you mentioned that you felt like this project was filling a gap um, that was right. left after that. So, Can you explain so more essentially, about that? Um, uh, th- that was our enslaved history, but there have been no attempt to record uh, the history after that, and I. I even talk about reconstruction, which we don't really know a lot about. And that is really sort of harmful because, you know, during reconstruction, there were like, I don't know, thousands of black politicians that we don't know the names of. So that that's what was important. The thing that I want to say is that we're housed at the Library of Congress since 2014. They became our permanent repository. So they're, because they're also the repository of the WPA slave narratives, in one place now are the stories of the formerly enslaved and the progeny of the formerly enslaved. So I just think that's pretty wonderful. But this is a project that we need lots of people helping us with. And I really think we will be heading uh, the way or forging the way this black project with others who have lost American stories. So you were talking, you know, to your, you know, to the listeners about who else has, you know, stories. There are lots of lost American stories. Mm-hmm. And you said you need lots of help with this project. How can people help with this project? Is this something that people oh, can just chip into? Volunteers, funding, <laughs> uh, you know, um, interviewers, uh, recommendations, though um, we, you know, it takes us some time to get through things and prioritize. Each interview costs $6,000. Wow. It's not just the interviewing, it's the archiving. Right. So we're right. a very serious oral history project, but we are also a very serious archive. Hmm. Is it the case, I, I believe I saw that at one point you looked in the archive and you felt like, women were underrepresented in the archive that you were making. Yeah, but, oh, you heard um, this. Yes, how, no. Tell me about that. How did you notice that? Um, and, uh, and why do you think it was the case? Okay, God. I could not notice it because there are 800 less women than that, and this is a woman-led project. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, intentional. Like, I could interview John Johnson, founder of, you know, Johnson Publishing, Ebony and uh, Jet, but I couldn't get... Um, Eunice Johnson to interview. And so that happened. And so I just think over time, it got to this catastrophic level. 
And if it weren't for for Ursula Burns, the former um, CEO of Xerox, who stepped forward um, to fund it. And so we're, we formed a Women Makers Advisory Committee. We've got the women leaders helping us across different disciplines. And so we're, we're really starting to change that. And, but it happened over a period of two yeah, decades. Yeah, yeah. I, I have to ask you, we've only got about uh, 60 seconds here for this, but we do exist in a moment where, uh, where an effort to interrogate American history is under a d- direct p- political attack. Um, and given that your work happens in educational institutions as well, I just wonder how, if that has shown up in your work at all. Um, and if not, um, just, just how you feel about the work you're doing in this political moment. Okay. First of all, our work started over two decades ago. So I think our agenda has already been set and we're not responding to Ron DeSantos or anyone else. So that's one thing. The second is that, yes, it has shown up. Um, we have had, um, pr- prior to any of this uproar in use in the classroom, where some students in their reviews said that they resented having to study about Black people. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also an equal number of people who were giving life to and were, were changing the narrative of African-American achievement in history. And so that's what I think is most important. We will have to leave it there. Juliana Richardson is founder of The History Makers. It's a video oral history of African-Americans with more than 3,500 entries housed at the Library of Congress and used in educational institutions and others. It's at thehistorymakers.org. Juliana, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Our theme music and sound design is by Jared Paul. Milton Ruiz was at the boards for our live show tonight. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thank you so much for spending this time with us.